As always, this show is brought to you by Mass Monopoly. We're an adventure sports agency focused on fueling the brands that fuel us. Everyone here is an adventure athlete of some sort and is active in some or all of the sports that we support. We help build adventure brands through authentic, value-based marketing, growing the business without selling your soul. Go to MassMonopoly.com for a free consultation. We're also brought to you by 508 Adventure Sports. 508 is a family-run business who want to keep adventure sports affordable for families. They manufacture and sell handcrafted hard goods like skateboards, mud guards, and more. They also source affordable, quality accessories for the sports they love, like mountain biking gloves, skateboarding pads, helmets, hiking equipment, and all kinds of stuff to keep you and your family out on adventures through all four seasons without breaking the bank. Check them out at 508.com. F-I-V-E, the letter O, the number 8.com. Today I got to talk to Joe McEwen, founder, designer, and fabricator at Starlink Cycles. Joe has a lot of unique and interesting ideas, strong opinions, and an obvious passion for the sport and for his craft. Those are all things that make for a great conversation. I had so much fun with this one that I'm already eager for our next one. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe McEwen. And here we go. So uh, I'm excited for you to be able to join today. We finally connected. Um, I'm excited to talk to you today. I like the fact that you build things, you build them with your own hands. That interests me. I don't personally know how to work with metal, but I, I build skateboards and things out of yeah. wood with my kids. I, I didn't know and, how to um, work with metal until I started, but... Oh, yeah? You can, and going, not, back and forth, going back and forth to get this going, um, our emails, it seems like you're a guy with strong opinions and a lot of passion for what you're doing. So I think it's going to be fun today to talk about how Starling came to be and why it is you do what you do. So. Um, how did that happen? How did Starling come to be a company? Um, I suppose I've always, I've always kind of made things. Um, I used to play golf. I used to sort of pack together some golf clubs. I used to skateboard when I was a kid and I used to make skateboards. Not very well, but I used to make skateboards to go on. So I've always <laughs> kind of made things. That's what I do. Um, and then I ended up with a, a career in engineering. So I was an aerospace engineer for, well, nearly 20 years from sort of end of, end of university until I've just given up. Um, and then I, I played golf until I was mid-20s. And then I realized I was getting a bit fat and unfit. So I uh, <laughs> started riding bikes instead. It was a bit more exciting. Um, yeah. And then exciting. riding bikes. Sorry, Gump. I said, yeah, it's more exciting for sure. I used to golf too, and I just don't, I don't find it very fun anymore. No, you've got to put a lot of time into golf. That's the trouble, isn't it? If you don't put a lot of time in, you uh, you end up rubbish. So uh, yeah, I haven't got that time. I can tell you, I was honestly never more than rubbish. I was never good at it. I just went out there okay. for the for the time outdoors, and then I found more things I like to do outdoors that are more exciting than golf. So things like mountain biking yeah. and snowboarding and other things. Yeah, yeah, no snowboarding here, but uh, lots lots of mountain biking. Uh, so yeah, I uh, I started mountain biking, got more and more into it, and then uh, got to the point where I decided I've always made things in the past. I'll I'll go and do a frame building course. And there's quite a few small scale builders in the UK who offer frame building courses. So I went on a course with a, a chap called Dave Yates, who's a he was a famous frame builder in the 80s and 90s, and he sort of moved into giving people courses. So went and stayed with him for a week with someone else and we uh, built a frame each. I built a single speed hardtail because thought that'd be simple and that'd be good fun. And then 
took that home and, and Dave Yates was a bit old school, so he convinced me I needed a, a 71 degree head angle on my hardtail. <laughs> and I was, I was never I was never convinced, but he convinced me. And then I got it back home, built it up and rode it and it was it was too steep a head angle, obviously. So I kind of thought, let's let's do something about this. And I just moved into a new house and the new house uh, at the bottom of the garden has got a little it was an office for the people who lived here before and I've kind of conv- I converted it into a workshop and I just thought right let's let's make it make it something interesting to do to put the proper head angle on this bike so I constructed a jig out of wood I got some small bottles of oxyacetylene and just just did it just chopped the head tube off put a new head tube on so I'd kind of I'd made a bike on a course and now I've done my first my first kind of modification at home. I'd made my first bit of bike at home. Yeah, nice. And then everything really just kinda of continued from there. Once I'd once I'd made one or I'd made one little mod, I the the second bike I made, I chopped up an old hardtail I had and made it into a a bike for my daughter. and she she rode around on it, rode around on it and that's good. And then uh, somebody gave me an old Cannondale Prophet swing arm and I made a new front triangle for that. And then it just progressed really. I sort of, you know, I'd spend my evenings in my sheds building, building bits of bikes. So it kind of became something you just enjoyed doing in your spare time at first and got more and more into it. So yeah, it was, it was a hobby. It was always a hobby. I was never, you know, I was never planning for it to be more than a hobby. It was just, I've always liked making things, making bikes, I rode bikes, let's, let's make bikes. And, but the more the more bikes I made, and I started getting, I made a I don't know if you've seen my single speed full sus bike, the BD yep. Little I. I made I, a, I made a version of that, an early prototype of that, and that was brilliant. I love riding that bike. And then I made a sort of early version of like the Enduro bike, and I started racing it, um, and it it seemed to work really well. And I was you know I started thinking, oh, okay, I'm not I'm not just knocking something together here. It's actually it's actually working. Yeah, it's performing. So yeah, and performing. Not not that I'm the world's greatest rider, so I wasn't winning any races on it, but it, it was riding as well, if not better, than all the bikes I'd had previously. So I started thinking, okay, there's something there's something going on here. Yeah. So I, I contacted I contacted Dirt Magazine. So Dirt Magazine, I don't know if you, you're probably aware of it over there. It's uh, no longer what it used to be, but it was the big, big kind of downhill magazine. It was, you know, everybody yep. knew Dirt Magazine. Yeah, and, I know, but... Steve Jones, the sort of chief tester there, I contacted him and said, did he want to have a go on one of my bikes? So, you know, and my, my thinking behind it was kind of as a home builder, kind of home builder, build a bike that's equivalent to what all the big brands are doing, what everyone out there is doing. Now, how and, long ago um, was this? How long ago was it you contacted Dirt and had them ride something? Do you know, I can't, I can't remember. It's, it's four or five years ago. I need right. to... There's a, there's a, I should have a copy of it here. There's a, there's a UK magazine called Sender Mag, sort of a small glossy mag. And I did an article with him and he, he actually got all the dates out of me, but I've forgotten now. But let's say, let's say four or five years ago. <laughs> yeah. Not very good dates. No, I was just curious how long ago it was. That's good. So, uh, he rode one of my early kind of enduro bikes and loved it. And there was a, there was a few issues with the early one. There was a bit. Yeah, it was a little bit flexy. Like the the it had a crappy shock on it. Um, it had, you know, I I had no expensive parts on it, but it seemed to work. And he's like, okay, there's something something going on here. Um, and then I built a few more prototypes. They rode them. 
Um, and then because I was getting a bit of exposure in dirt, um, I started getting some orders coming through. Great. So sort of one, two orders. And the, the first few bikes I sold off dirt cheap, so a thousand pounds, which, you know, for a full sus bike is pretty cheap. Um, yeah. and custom sized. And my first few customers were pretty happy. They were all good. One of my first customers was a, uh, bike shop owner in, America, oh sorry, not in America, that's you, in Switzerland, who said he did 20 hours of riding a week, so 20 hours on the week, on the bike a week, and nice. he had one of my bikes for a year, and it didn't break, he had no issues with bearings, it kept going, and he, and he loved it, so that was a really good sort of first test that Hell yeah. it had longevity, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a bike that was going to fall apart, and I think he's a pretty rapid rider, so... Um, and it, yeah, it's just from, from that, it's just kind of progressed and more and more sales. What, one of the, one of the key things that happened was I made a, a 29er prototype and I went and rode it with one of my mates and I absolutely loved it. He did a few runs on it. Absolutely loved it. I went to see Steve Jones to show him one of my 27 inch bikes. Uh -huh. that I'd had painted in a in a lovely custom paint job with birds flying it over and that was me attempting to sort of show something really beautiful and what I could achieve but in in my van at the same time was the the 29er prototype which was unpainted it was sort of rusting a bit it mm had -hmm. only been ridden a handful of times and he he wasn't interested in my beautiful painted bike which I was a bit upset <laughs> about he just wanted to, he just wanted to ride the 29er so we went and did a did a loop of the local woods on the 29er and he, and he absolutely loved it. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me take it away. He took it off me and started riding it and he did some timed runs on it. And I think he published the results of those time runs and my 29er prototype, which, you know, it was just, it was a prototype. I hadn't really thought too much about geometry, too much about how it was going to work, but uh -huh. it was four or five seconds quicker on a two minute track than some top end, Ten thousand pound carbon carbon bikes that he was testing at the moment. Wow! So, and he, he he published that on his Instagram account, and overnight I had about twenty orders for that bike. That's um, awesome. That's got to feel good too. It's kind of like yeah, um, you know, you're building something because you wanted to build it. It's not like it's a job, and then all of a sudden people are recognizing, hey, this this works. I want one of those. Yeah, and it was you know it's sort of validation. I'd I'd always thought they rode well. But you, you, anything you do is always good. It's like everyone's a, well, everyone's kids are great, aren't they? And everyone's a, everyone's great at painting. Everything you do yourself is great. So to have a bit right. of validation that somebody else thought it was good was, was fantastic. Sure. Yeah. So you, so, yeah. you mentioned yeah. you mentioned that before you got into the bikes, uh, you're an aerospace engineer. What what were you doing in aerospace engineering? So I was a, I was a stress engineer. So. Uh, really, my job was to analyze aircraft components and do calculations to decide how strong they were. So, um, a lot of hand calculations, but a lot, also a bit of finite element. So, people know finite element as the, the, the colored pictures that show you where the high stresses are. Mm -hmm. But I was, a, I was always a bit of a, a bit more traditional and preferred hand calculations. F, FE has got a, a, a tendency to, be good for marketing and good for good for presentations where you can show things are good, but it doesn't necessarily give you the right answer. 
that sure that's got to come in handy that has to translate pretty well to especially downhill mountain biking there's a lot of stress that goes into the the frames and what you're building uh the stress stress goes into everything so not just downhill as any old bike so yeah and it's it's yeah so my my i've got a very good head for understanding how materials behave how how structures behave um you know i can i it's always been pretty intuitive to me to understand that. So as a, yeah, in aerospace, we did a lot of aluminium stuff, but I, I very early on, I got involved in carbon fiber. Uh, I was involved in an aircraft called A400M, which is a, a military transporter, and it was the first carbon aircraft that um, Airbus built. So I was, I was involved at an early stage of that when I was quite young, but developing analysis methods, you know, thinking about materials, think about the design of the carbon structure. Cool. And then from that, I followed in, I got more and more into carbon fiber research. Um, I worked for a company that was, that was dedicated to um, doing research projects for Airbus. Um, and then eventually I got a post at a company called GKN, big company called GKN, running their, their uh, I, was, I was tech lead for the uh, their carbon fiber research department. And that was, that was a fantastic job. We were looking at new technologies, trying to come up with new designs, doing a lot of testing, really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, it sounds so, fun. Yeah. And, but see, you did a lot of work in carbon fiber, but you, you, your bikes are steel, right? Yeah, so I suppose I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware that I've, I've made a jump from carbon to steel, and I, I've perhaps played to the facts a little bit, but it's, you know, carbon is a, I don't know, we, I, I knew one chap who was a, uh, uh, a very senior engineer in Airbus, and he, he did, he wrote a little report which he hid on the Airbus server, which basically showed it would be better to make aircraft out of aluminium than carbon fibre. There's so no many ish, there's so many issues associated with carbon fiber to do with quality to do with you know maintaining that quality improving that quality that it, it kills the benefits that you can potentially get from it so there's a aerospace is very safety driven so you have to prove yeah. everything is safe and as soon as you have to start proving stuff is safe you have to add in contingency which adds in weight which adds in cost so aluminium we know very well and I don't know, as time goes on, you kind of realize you can make a flat sheet out of carbon fiber really well. But as soon as you try and put carbon fiber into a complex shape, all the beautiful layers of carbon fiber end up doing weird things. And that, that kills strength, that kills the, the confidence you have in that, in that structure. What are the weird things? So, what happens with, with carbon when it's in like fancy frames or when it's in odd shapes? So it, it, imagine it's, uh, I suppose a good way of thinking about it is a, the, lead, the pages of a book. The pages of a book all sit nicely on top of each other. As soon as you try and bend the pages, the pages all move apart, don't they? If you, yeah, if you take a magazine, yeah, and they, they separate, yeah. And as soon as they separate, that breaks the, the strength between the layers and you lose the, the bending strength of the material. So you can, you can get around it a little bit by using different types of resin, and, but it's that sort of structure or the, the, the quality of the structures you see in push bikes, you would never see on a, you'd never see on an aircraft. It wouldn't, it wouldn't even get anywhere near passing quality. So I think right. I'll, I'll be careful what I say here. There was a, there was a, a large 
American brand who posted up a cross section of one of their bikes and they posted it up as kind of a, an, you know, they were very proud of what they'd achieved and it was absolutely shocking. The quality of the layout was absolutely shocking. It was, you know, the fibers all over the place. There was sort of like loops in the carbon fiber. There was resin rich areas. And I, I you know, in, it's probably strong enough for mountain bikes. It's sufficient for mountain bikes. Mountain bikes compared to an aircraft don't have to have the same uh, safety requirements. They don't have the same strength requirements. Well, no, so you're not landing. Enough. You're not landing from thirty thousand feet. You're landing from five or ten. <laughs> yeah, and you haven't got you haven't got five hundred people on board. Is the main thing. No, no. You got you got one person. If it cracks, it's unlikely someone's going to die. If an airplane wing falls off, you know that's five hundred dead people, and that's a yeah, massive not good. So the, I think the air, you know, carbon fiber in bikes, I think is good enough. But when you've seen what they try and achieve in aerospace, it's just not the same quality. So you, I know you just look at it and think that's crap. I don't want to make, I don't want to make bikes out of things like that. Yeah. So, so uh, having, having your experience in aerospace in which takes carbon fiber to another level than it's usually worked on, I guess, in bikes and other products, it makes you feel yeah. like you can't get the most out of the material. So why bother work with something that yeah, you can and, maximize? And, yeah. What are the, what are the requirements for a mountain bike? I, I personally, I don't think weight is that important. I'll, I'll come on to that later on, but I don't think weight is that important for something, you know, unless you're a eight stone, you know, top level cross country racer. I don't mm. think it matters. Yeah, it doesn't matter for the rest of us. So if we get rid of weight, then, um, you know, what's damage tolerance is really important, isn't it? You drop mountain bikes, you throw them all over the place. Like, you know, they're, 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 they're a thing that's used and abused. So yeah. it's important that it, that it hangs together. So a dent in a steel bike is no issue at all. If you, if you hit the top, top tube of a carbon bike, um, there's something called BVID, which is a, I don't know, it's got different terms in different industries, but in aerospace, it was BVID, which was barely visible impact damage, which means you have a, a damage on the outside of something, and it might be a tiny little scratch, but inside, all of the carbon fiber is delaminated. It's all, mm. it's all broken inside, but you can only see the damage on the outside. And what happens is when you whack it, all the energy just moves through the matrix of the carbon fiber and causes it to delaminate inside, but it looks fine on the outside. So mm. if you've got that on a bike, you might have a little scratch on the outside and it's all knackered on the inside. Yeah. And you don't, you don't want that. That's not, that's not an idea really. So do you think that that big American anonymous brand that posted some of their, uh, a cross section of their carbon fiber, do you think that they didn't know the errors or they couldn't they didn't understand that it was bad or do you think that they're hoping that the just the general populace doesn't know the difference i i i, I they can't have known can they if if they posted it they can't have known so god you hope not and but they they've done their testing you know I, i've got to be careful that it is good enough like carbon bikes are good they don't they don't break very rarely very often you know they are they are strong enough it's just that when you've seen better you you feel it doesn't look quite right. Yeah, I get it. You and it's just if you're a craftsman and you're in there actually building the things yourself, and you you to get to to do what you do, you probably have a bit of a perfectionist streak in yourself somewhere. And then if you can't get the materials to be the where you want them to be, 
then use the materials that you can get there, right? I mean, it just it makes yeah. you probably yeah. makes you more comfortable with the bikes you're going to be shipping out. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I got I got one other thing I've been thinking about carbon fiber bikes recently. I I, I went out to uh, Taiwan end of last year to look at the I'm getting uh, some of my frames now are going to be made in Taiwan, and I went out to visit the factory and see see what it was like out there, and the factory was amazing. It was it was uh, it was kind of like my workshop, but on a much much bigger scale. So it was it was there were lots of skilled welders. There were you know skilled people using all the machinery, machinery operators, CNC machine operators, people forming all the materials. It was a a workshop, a, a factory full of skilled people. Mm-hmm. One one thing carbon fiber manufacturer is once you've paid the money for the mould. It's relatively unskilled labor to fill that mold with carbon fiber. And mm. then you squeeze in the resin, you cook it. You just need somebody who's relatively skilled to, to control the cure. And then it comes out. And again, you need unskilled labor to to, uh, to tidy it up and you know, assemble it. So there's, if, I'm, if I'm running a great big company, a risk is always having skilled staff. If you can replace your skilled staff with unskilled staff, then that that removes the risk in your your management of your company. So I think there's a little bit of pushing carbon fiber because it allows you to have unskilled staff. It allows you to you know knock down the wages of your you know you've got big upfront costs for the, the tooling and the the autoclaves and stuff, but the the actual manufacture of the frame becomes unskilled. Which yeah, I've read I've read that before too. That once you've got the setup done, and once you're once you're ready to mass produce, the carbon fiber becomes cheaper than than working in yeah. aluminum or, or steel because yeah. of that fact. Yeah, and yeah, aluminium is so, as skilled as uh, as as steel. Really, it's the uh, same idea. It sounds to me like it's not the material that you're against. It's more the current capabilities with it. Like in in ten years, yeah. if car if carbon fiber and the production of it can be farewell perfected or, or done you know to a to a much higher degree it sounds like you'd look at it then it's just that right now it doesn't meet your own your own specs um yeah you, yeah maybe i still i don't know i still think there's uh there's some other things that still gives you it gives you the damage tolerance uh i i like the aesthetics of it i've 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 coming from an engineering background i've always liked that form follows function you know if if it if it performs properly and the structure's good then uh it looks good whereas i a lot of a lot of bikes are i think are first of all designed by a product designer and then mm-hmm. the engineer comes in afterwards so that's the wrong way around i think you have the the engineer designs it and then the product designer comes in and tweaks it for aesthetics but i think using steel where you're limited to you know you can't hide your form steel particularly easily you can't you can't machine parts, so you've got to be. You've got. To, it's, it's always going to be simple. So you've right. got to apply some thinking. You've got to try and make it elegant with those simple forms to get a good design out of it. And I like that. It's more of a. It's more of a challenge than just starting with a a CAD box and drawing the shape you want, and then sort of shoehorning in the engineering and the the, the, the materials and the. Yeah, it does make for some sexy bikes, but I, at the same time. I, I agree on, I like things that are simple because simple usually doesn't break or if it does break, you can fix yeah. it. You know, simple, simple is manageable. And it usually, yeah. some of the, some of the bikes today, they're, they're very 
not simple. They they look amazing and and they ride amazing, but they're not the kind of bike that you can do your own tune up. You know, they're they're more than people yeah. can can work on. I I I I think simplicity is now complexity is quite often a it's because you've used a sticking plaster to solve a problem. So if you've got a problem, there's two ways of solving it. You either go back to the start and get rid of the problem at the start, or you apply a sticking plaster, you add something to it to get rid of that problem. And to me, anytime you've got something that's complex, what's, what the designer's done is, oh, we've got a problem, let's fix it by this, rather than saying, let's go back to the start, let's think about what the, what the real problem is. Let's try and get our, our basic design to solve that problem, rather than adding something in. So, that makes sense? so what do you, go ahead. What do you do to keep your bike simple? Um, so they're, they're, they're single pivot. Um, they're, they've got a linear suspension curve. Um, they're, you know, it's, it's basically straight lines, straight tubes. I've tried to minimize the amount of material at the, the, the difficult interfaces, so the main pivot and around the bottom bracket where, where space issues are. I've tried to simplify that region around there and get it as minimal as possible. Um, you know, there's no, the other thing is in, in ride dynamics, the anti-squat, anti-rise behavior, which is essentially how the suspension is impacted by accelerations and decelerations and, and body movements. I've tried to keep right. that as, as simple as possible. So as you move around on the bike, the main pivot is positioned so you have the minimum impact on the suspension. Whereas some people say, oh, you want, you want it so that when you pedal, it tucks the rear tire in to give you grip from the rear tire. Yeah, maybe, but I think just keep it neutral, keep it simple. And then, and then it's easier for people's heads to understand and it makes it easier to ride and then makes it better. Well, that's kind of the arms race in, in bikes right now is enduro, right? There's just, there's like yeah. three main classes between trail enduro and downhill. But the real race is to make a bike that will crush the downhill and also the uphill that will pedal, you know, without the sag and, and really perform. And, I mean, there's a lot of bikes out there that are pretty pretty damn close. I mean, I've ridden some bikes that, that are enduro-class bikes that uh, charge downhill, but they pedal up the, up the hill yeah. just fine. They, you know, they perform awesome. So I think, but it, it still looks like that's the thing that the industry is trying to perfect is the all-rounder. Yeah, yeah. There is a little bit, though, of one thing I keep thinking, and I, I, I get sucked into this, is kind of pedal up and then bomb down. But occasionally we go along, don't we? And I think we're, we're forgetting bikes that go along. And I haven't, I haven't got a bike that goes along at the moment. They're all, all my bikes are designed to pedal up a fire road nice and nice, and then, you know, be really fast going downhill, which is what, mm-hmm. which is what enduro is. But there's still, you know, sometimes you do a cross-country loop and you go along a slight incline or you go along a slight down, and we, we kind of forget that a little bit, but... I'd, I'd like to build a bike to do that at some point. I'd love to ride it because most of my riding is uh, in the woods here in New England in America. So most of my rides are me and friends heading out into the woods on trails, uh, you know, yeah. rock gardens and just, um, but no, no fire roads, no lifts. So it's, it's okay. really heading out, heading out for a good uh, 10 mile ride around the woods. So there's some uphills, there's some downhills. Uh, you got to earn the downhills by riding all the way up, though, and it's used mostly yeah. technical terrain, you know, single track, yeah, yeah. and and yeah, you pedal a lot, you know, <laughs> that's that's what you're doing yeah, the yeah. whole time. So for me, that's been I really, really my next bike. I I I want an enduro bike, but it's been hard for me to 
commit. And I, I mean, I'm, I want to, but it's been hard for me to commit because I, I'm still waiting for that perfection, you know, because I spend the majority of my writing. I'm at a bike park maybe twice a year, uh, three times a yeah. year, but most of my time is just in the woods. So I'm, I'm, I'm still a little hesitant to, to get rid of some of that pedal power. A lot of it comes from wheels, though. I think I think we most bikes are pretty good these days, but you've always compromised on wheels. So if you going uphill, you need a lightweight set of wheels. Going downhill, you want a heavier, stronger set of wheels. Yep. And the same with tires. It's always a compromise between wheel weights for going up. And then I think a bit of wheel weight actually helps going down. It, it tracks the bike bare. It doesn't get knocked offline. So... Well, you're almost at the point where the frames are good enough. Now, they all pedal pretty well. They all pedal pretty badly. But you want your cross-country wheels going up and your downhill wheels going down. But that's Right. Quite There's a difference in the dig and the drag, too, of the of the tires yeah. that, that, yeah, that yeah, can yeah, yeah. make a difference. There we go. Variable size tires and weight tires. That's what we need. That's, a, uh, that's an interesting one. So I, it's, I thought it was interesting that you're – the murmur, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, by the way, the, and it did, the lines are super clean. Then and it's a two niner, which is interesting because maybe you're seeing something else. But in Europe, isn't the the aren't they slower to adopt the two niner? The twenty seven five is still um, the most popular. No, not really. No, this the past couple of years, there's a lot of twenty niners around. Um, yeah, I think I think it's it's the past couple of years. It's really changed. Um, I've got a race team. I've got four riders racing for me, three of them on 29ers, and then Phil actually rode one of my 29ers for the first time last weekend and got his best result ever. So, and he's nice. not a, I, I kind of think there's a little bit of, it's a size thing. If you're, I, know, I think five foot six is kind of the cutoff. If you're, if you're five foot six, then you're probably 27 and a half. If you're any taller, you're 29er suits you better. Yeah. There's a little bit I, of it's a, a, an ergonomic thing. I like it too. I, I, I ride a two niner. I, I like them a lot. I, I love the the jump. Um, it's curious. It's interesting that you're you're not seeing that the hesitancy. And I talked to a couple other yeah, people from different companies, and they are. It'd be interesting to see it shake out. The, the two niners are super popular here in America. Yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about why they work as well. Do I quick a quick go through that because uh, that's, that's that's interesting. Another bit another bit of tech about twenty niners. Um, so there's a lot of talk about, well, I'll do tire contact patch first. Everyone says, oh, 29 has got a bigger contact patch. Absolute bollocks. There's a, am I allowed to say bollocks? I'll say it twice now. I'll say it again. <laughs> there's a, the, the contact patch is entirely proportional to the pressure in the tires. So it's the pressure that supports the rider's weight. So a, a 29 inch, 2.8 inch tire with 20 PSI has got exactly the same contact patch as a 1.8 inch, 26 inch tire. So contact patch is nonsense. It is totally down to pressure. So forget about that. Um, people talk about rollover. They say the 29-inch wheels have got more rollover. Mm-hmm. If you, I've done, I've done a few diagrams before, and I've looked at if you hit a 50-millimeter bump, so a two-inch bump, uh, and you look at the angle it hits the tire at. If you do that with a 26-inch wheel, a 29-inch wheel, with 27-and-a-half-inch wheel. The angle, the forces that it put into the tire, there's about a degree difference. It's a tiny difference. So they don't really roll over. And anything bigger than half an inch, say two or three inches, isn't something you're going to roll over, is it? So there's very, very little difference between rollover. Um, people say, oh, the 29ers accelerate slower. But they don't because the tire actually spins slower. So 
if if you know it's 29 versus 27 and a half it it spins at that ratio slower because it's it's a bigger wheel it's got a bigger circumference so there's mm -hmm. no difference in acceleration there is a little bit of difference that the the 29 is a bigger wheel overall so it might add a pound half a pound to your bike weight overall but again weight isn't that important so that's pretty negligible the only thing i've found that matters is remember you used to get uh what are they called um things used to spin the uh, uh gyroscopes you used to spin a gyroscope and you in it in it sort of to spin it out of plane is really hard so imagine you get your front wheel and you spin it really fast and you hold it at the axles to move yep. the wheel out of plane requires quite a bit of force it's quite hard and it tends to pull itself straight the the, the inertia that's in that wheel is proportional to the the radius squared so if that's you a 29 inch a 29 inch is about 10 percent 15 percent more inertia in it than a 27 and a half so of all the numbers about 29 inch tires 29 inch wheels that's the only number that i've found a significant difference in and if, you, really if you think about that if you're bombing through a rock garden the 29er, because it's got that extra inertia, it doesn't get knocked off line as easily. It doesn't get knocked out of the straight line direction. I think that is what people perceive as rollover. It's that it keeps tracking in a straight line. It doesn't get kicked out of line. And when you get a an off-camber section, the 29er just seems to sit on off-camber so much better than the smaller wheels. And again, I think that's the same, the same kind of behavior. It's the inertia. It's the off-axis inertia, which is the, the thing that changes. I might that's be totally really wrong, but that's my, uh... <laughs> I've never heard anybody put it that way before. That that's really interesting. I I want to ask you though. You you were mentioning on on rollover that it doesn't have much difference on a half inch or a one inch. What about on a five inch? What about on something um, that's six seven inches? Yeah, in, like like a a log or a rock garden full of bigger boulders. What about does it you, does it roll easier there? A five six inch lump, you can't roll over, can you? You've got to you've got to move the bike over it. You've got to pull sure. up over it. So yeah, it might it has a bit more as the tire gets bigger, or as the lump gets bigger, the effect becomes less. But I I think you get to you know a two inch bump is realistically what you're going to hit at speed and hope to get over. Anything bigger than that, you're going to have to do something about it, aren't you? You're going to have to you're going to have to pull up. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You're pulling up, but the tire is still coming over. It's like if you're, you know, if you're going over a tree that fell down over the path and it's, it's, you know, it's small enough that you can get over it, but you're going to definitely have to lift the front and back as you go, but the tire is yeah. going over it. I'm curious if the 29 inch wheels, do they make a difference at that point versus a 26 or is that just Maybe. rider? You think that's just rider pulling the bike over it with muscle? Yeah, I think, I think that becomes a bunny hop, doesn't it? That becomes a, you're not just, you're not just hanging on and hoping you're going to roll over it. You're, you're jumping at that point. You're hopping over it. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe it does at that point. But all very complicated, isn't it? That's the trouble. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> definitely. It's all, it's all way beyond my pay grade. It's, uh, yeah. but it's, it's really interesting because I've never heard that gyroscope example makes total sense. Um, yeah. and I've never, I've never heard anyone, anyone mention that about the, the 29s before. That's really interesting. I, I spent a bit of time thinking about 29ers and I did a bit of, there's, there's loads of information on the internet and everybody, this question has been answered by about a thousand times by millions of people, but it, well, you gotta be you careful know, you, with that because you don't know whose yeah. answer, who it is yeah. that's giving you an answer and any quality yeah. behind it. But then you can you can do you know I I'm I'm able to do sanity checks on all of those things that's sort of you know my skill set I'm able to do that so I'm I'm pretty confident in in what I've read and that all the numbers I've done tie up with tie up with what people are saying so interesting 
it, it really is. That, that's uh, it's. I'm smiling ear to ear. It's just new <laughs> stuff. I, I didn't expect to learn today. Um, okay. I want to, but I, so I want to keep going and dig in because I want to. I want to get a better understanding. I know that throughout your website, and you've mentioned it to me, that silence is a big thing with your bikes. What do you mean by yeah. silence? Um, I, I I think a lot of we we've talked a lot about bike performance, but a lot of bike performance. Well, ninety five percent is the rider, isn't it? And uh, I think quite often when you buy a new bike, even if the bike is worse than the old one, you ride better on the new one once you've got used to it because you're more com- you're more confident in it and it's shiny. So you think, yeah, I'm going to go faster. Well, you and, you uh, paid for it too, so it better do better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think silence is the same thing. If you ride a bike and it's rattly, you just you don't trust it, and and it also it it detracts from your ability to concentrate a little bit whereas if your bike is absolutely silent and if you've ever ridden a silent bike it, it is amazing you just you just feel confident there's nothing to there's nothing to track all you can hear is the, the sound of the tires and hopefully you've got a nice quiet free hub as well and it just you know it just feels great it feels solid you feel confident and i think yeah, I don't, it was i don't think i've ever ridden anything thing so. that, uh, it was one thing that sam hill always used to and I remember lots of features on his bikes, and they always said his bikes were silent. And he's he's quite quick, I think. So, how do, so? How does it come to be? How do you make a bike silent? I mean, a lot of the even the newer high end expensive bikes I've ridden, they they don't have a lot of creaks or slapping, but they they make a lot of noise. They the they they're they're not quiet at all. And, and my bike, you know, think- after every season, mine starts to creak, and you know, when it needs a tune up, and you got to pull the bottom bracket apart when it's time. It, my bike makes a ton of noise. Mm. So this, 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 partly if your bike is simple and there's less things to move, there's less things to go wrong. So if you've only got one pivot, then mm-hmm. it's not going to make a lot. Of, you know, there's less to go wrong. That's going to start creaking and making noise. Mm-hmm. But this, the size of the tubes is is a big factor. The the tubes act as a sound box. They act, they they cause the noises in the frame to be you know made louder. They cause them to you know, vibrate inside the tube. So if you've got small diameter tubes, you just don't get that noise being generated. So the small no steel tubes just don't don't generate a lot of noise. Ride a steel hardtail, it's pretty quiet. Ride a great big, you know, aluminium monocoque frame and it makes a racket. That's really interesting because that's one thing I noticed about your bikes is they, they don't follow the trend of like thicker tubes to make the thing look more, more aggressive and the... Mm. And the, the fact that that has an engineering reason behind it is fascinating. That's that's really interesting. So, and I I get it. So it's kind of like a reverb chamber. You get bigger, you get yeah. louder. Your bike's basically a speaker, and yours is quieting. Yeah. Yours is dampening the noise. But it's not it's not dampening the noise down, but it's not attenuating it as much as as much as big tubes. It's just that's really interesting. So yeah, that's interesting. What else do I need to know about your about your uh, bikes and bikes in general. So coming coming on from the the, the small diameter tubes, um, compliance. So stiff compliance is the opposite to stiffness. You know, we we everybody thinks they want a very stiff bike, and they think, oh, it's stiff. I'm going to pedal. I'm going to go fast because of stiffness. Yeah, m- m- maybe to a tiny degree, but like okay, I'll, I'll cover the pedaling stiffness one first. Imagine um, if you Really, the amount of energy you get out from pedaling is a function of how hard you can push on the pedals. Mm-hmm. You know, because all the energy 
that you put into the pedals, the force you put into the pedals comes out the back wheel. We're not losing energy in heat. We're not losing energy in sound. So all the energy, energy you put in comes out the back wheel. And there's, there's quite a lot of evidence that reinforces that. Um, what, what the problem is, if, if you've got a flexi crank, for example, you can't push as hard in the pedals. As you push on the pedals, the pedal moves out the way. You don't get quite as much power down. If it twists sideways, you don't get as much power down. But the analogy I've been using is if you, if you stamp on a, a foam block, you can't get that much energy. You can't get that much force into the foam block. If you stamp on a wooden floor, you can pretty much get as much power as you want out of your leg. You can push as hard as you possibly can. Yeah. If you stamp on a, a solid steel floor, you can probably only get as much, uh, much force as you can out of the wooden floor. But the, the steel floor is a lot stiffer than the, the wooden floor. So all you need is something to be stiff enough that you can get in your pedaling forces. You don't need to make it stiffer and stiffer and stiffer and stiffer. You just need it to be stiff enough. So I think... Uh, a steel frame with a you know a pair of reasonable cranks on it is stiff enough that all of your pedaling energy will go forward and, and will go into forward motion. So therefore, the, you, you don't need to keep making bikes stiffer for pedaling reasons. It's stiff enough, and you know my bikes all pedal really well. I've got I've got well, I've got national enduro champion at the moment. I've got you know it's it's they're fast. They pedal well. They pedal fast. Yeah, that's so, awesome. So only needs to be stiff enough pedaling. So then we start thinking about um, stiffness for other reasons. So imagine you're going along in a, in a straight line and I've got, well, at the moment I've got a thousand pounds worth of uh, Lyric fork on the front and I've, I've got like a thousand pounds worth of an EXT shock on the rear. So I've got two grand's worth of suspension taking bumps out vertically. If I go around a corner and I lean my bike over to 45 degrees, then only half of the bump forces are going through the suspension. The rest of the bump forces are bending the frame sideways. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yep. So, so if my frame is really, really stiff laterally, if my frame is really, really stiff sideways, it can't conform to the bumps. It, it bounces off them. It, it chatters on the bumps. But if you've got a bit of give in your frame and it can move sideways, it starts sticking to the ground. It's got a bit of suspension sideways. So... Yeah, yeah. So a bit of lateral suspension. Ideally you have a shock absorber acting sideways and that's so oh, I should keep that quiet. That's the that's a future idea. But you know, <laughs> so you need a, you need a bit of, you need a bit of compliance in the frame. So um one thing steel does, because steel um you don't need those great big large diameter tubes for strength. So it, an engineering thing here, a large diameter tube gives you better strength for a lower weight. And I, I now that's a very accepted thing. That's why everything has big fat tubes, fat tennis rackets, and you know, lots of things are fat because it's a, it's a good way to get a weight efficient design. Mm-hmm. But if you make a steel tube very, very large diameter, the wall thickness becomes so thin that it, it, it becomes like a tin can. You have to have relatively small tubes thick wall tubes because that is the uh the best well it, you need it for denting so they don't dent but that small diameter is a lot more flexible than a great big large diameter and the, the stiffness the bending stiffness is proportional to a square term gain. so there's a there's a big difference mm. and then again if you look at the stays on my bike it's got really thin stays and they're strong enough they're plenty strong enough because they're steel 
but they've got give in them, they've got compliance in them because they're small diameter. So you could do it out of aluminium, but if you make an aluminium frame that small diameter, um, because the stresses are higher, it would fatigue. So you need the big diameter to, to stop it fatiguing and snapping. Mm-hmm. You could do the same with carbon fiber. You can make them, you can make small diameter with carbon fiber, but it would actually become very difficult to manufacture because you couldn't, you couldn't get any kind of tool, any kind of mandrel inside inside the tool as you manufactured it. So carbon and, and aluminium lend themselves to big tubes. Steel lends itself to small tubes. Because it lends itself to small tubes, you get that compliance. And so if you read yeah, any and the, review, and the quiet, but, right? So let me ask, uh, my, I'm ignorant, but can, so the carbon fiber won't flex like steel, right? So that in those turns, you're not going to have that, that lateral flex that you'll get out of a steel bike. Is that right? Yeah. Unless you, unless you design it in somehow, just, just, you know, the, the design of carbon bikes that are out there at the moment, they, a lot of the problem is that they are designing it to be stiff because they think that's a design requirement they want. I don't think it's a design requirement, but the, the, the carbon lends itself to a stiff bike more than a, you couldn't build a massively stiff steel bike. You could build a compliant carbon bike, but I don't, people aren't aiming at that at the moment. They might change their minds when they realize what's, and it's kind of happening. But, um, yeah. Do you- do you sell your bikes all over the all over the world now? You you mentioned that you went from you know zero to two to twenty, uh, all pretty fast. Where where can people get your bikes now? Um, I'm I'm at the moment I'm I'm only selling uh, well. At the moment, I'm only producing UK made custom sized frames, and for any of those, people need to to contact me directly because they're custom size. I need to talk to the mm-hmm. customer and get their get their what their requirements but I've, like i was saying earlier on i went to taiwan last year and I've, i'm getting a batch of my murmur 29 inch frame made in taiwan they're actually pretty close to uh completion now so they should get delivered or oh, end of october or middle of october um i'm taking pre-sales on them i'm actually looking for distributors at the moment on those so i've got a, i've got an australian distributor uh, I've been contacted by a few around the world, but the Americans are, are proving tricky. It's really, uh, I don't know, you might be able to tell me, but my, my perception is the American market are quite quite conservative and um, something new and different doesn't doesn't get picked up quite so easily, but may, maybe not. No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think what it is okay. is, um, I think it's people get their information differently here. This is what I've, like what I've picked up from um, talking to European and like uh, mountain bike companies from different countries and not just mountain bike because we work in um, adventure sports. So even in, in yeah, snowboarding yeah. And, and other things, I think the audience learns about things differently. Okay. So um, that like, like in Europe, the, the buy direct model and uh, you know, direct consumer sales and all that stuff is a lot more popular than it is here. Yeah. And yeah. so the bike shops have a stronger foothold here. And it's it's because of a culture thing where here the bike shops are are really part of the, the local riding fabric. You know, they're involved in trail building and maintenance and running rides and it's a it's a very um hands-on type of relationship where and I you correct me if I'm wrong, this is just what I've heard. That no, it's no, not, it, it's not the same over there. So yeah. like the I, I I almost never talk about us and and but this kind of leads well into us. So sorry to bore everybody with some marketing, but 
there's that's a different good. way. There's, there's a different way to educate the American consumer so that they're even aware that it's there. If you just if you just leave it up to hopefully they find out about me, it's not going to happen, right? Because you're okay. A bike shops carry three, four brands max. You know, there's no bike shop in the yeah, world yeah. that can carry all the brands that exist nowadays. So no one's no one's going to happen across a Starling or even a Transition or a YT, even even bigger brands. You're not going to happen across them because your local store is going to have specialized Trek, Cannondale, maybe Santa Cruz. Okay. You know, you know. So, but what you do is you have A, you have talking with your friends. And then you have B, when you know you need a new bike and you're sitting on your couch and your kids are running around and you're um, you're just researching, you're Googling for like what what kind of bikes are out there. I've heard of Enduro and Trail. Like what what's out there? And you start to just sort of put your questions out to the universe, to the to the great googly moogly. And that is where brands are making a difference because you can be the answer. You can be those results and you can start to filter into people's lives through content and through through yeah. um through value-based marketing where you're you're helping them answer a question of what kind of bike is right for them or how to tune their bike up for spring or you know, instead of a sales message. And that is how the American consumer is getting information is okay. through those methods. So that yeah, I think okay. is is that and bike shops, but I and I, I would encourage you to, you know, work with distributors or bike shops. I don't, I don't know that side of the industry well enough to even comment. But I, you're, I don't think Starling's ever going to be like the main – not ever. But for a while, you're not going to be able to replace Specialized in the local stores. Yeah. So there's got to be a different way to get Americans to yeah. even know that you've got these, these, uh, these bikes and that you're doing some different work that's interesting. Yeah, I don't, I don't even want to replace Specialized. I'm happy, I'm happy selling a few and uh... – my, my aim is to pay my mortgage and feed my kids and pay for my retirement and um, and design bikes, do engineering. I'm an engineer. I'm not a salesman, so it's uh, you know, I'm not not that fussed about selling millions and millions. No, no need for that. Sure, sure. Yeah, and you don't need no to sell millions and millions to pay your mortgage. Millions and millions can come with a whole new headache. I think um, yeah. it's an interesting conversation we have with a lot of the the more the smaller or the niche brands. Yet yeah, you don't want to be like nobody. Um, not, not nobody. It's unfair. But most companies say they don't want to be specialized or they don't want to be Burton. They don't want to be the big guy because yeah. that comes with more corporate mantra and mentality. Not that there's anything wrong with specialized or Burton. They make they make dynamite products. They have great R and D. Like there's nothing bad about yeah. them. But the little guy doesn't want to be the big guy. They want to be the the yeah. nimble, you know, quick thinking little guy. But one of the questions or the things that I always discuss with folks is there's a big difference between uh, a company that's selling a hundred bikes, 200 bikes, 2000 bikes, 20,000 bikes, and a billion dollar corporation that's selling, yeah. you know, who knows how many bikes. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of ground in the middle to get yeah. more people aware of your bikes, to get more people on your bikes without, um, be, without becoming that that giant or that juggernaut, there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of room in the middle for people to get new bikes and understand yeah. that there's options out there. I think one of one of the benefits of staying small is you, you you're not taking that big a market share, so it's it's easier. As soon as you if you try and be big and then you want to be a big bit of the market share, then you you've got a challenge, haven't you? It's uh, just to be a niche product. There's always there's always a market for niche products. It's just getting it, just finding the right people, I suppose, isn't it? And, I, well, I think the big brands you're you're now you're getting into gambling more than you are to yeah. just trying yeah. to to succeed, right? Because if you're if you're specialized, if you're Burton and you've got, you know, every store from 
well, globally. I mean, really, it's not like there's a market they're not in. So you have to make a lot of products and you don't really know yeah. how many you're going to sell. And that ends up with the, the, you know, the closeout deals and the sales and a lot of the niche brands want to stay clear of that at all. And they'd rather sell yeah. out, have a, have a year of growth, right? But they don't want to have um, growth they can't plan or can't sustain so that they can sell out not discount their products, keep that niche mentality. And next year, maybe they make an extra, you know, 500 bikes or extra thousand bikes, depending on where you are in your growth. Mm-hmm. Or um, it doesn't have to be bikes either, snowboard, whatever, the, the smaller yeah, company, yeah. They, they try to grow through that sustained um, quality, I guess, as opposed to specialized has to gamble. You know, they've got a lot of yeah, people yeah. running the numbers, but it's, it's still a gamble. How many, how many bikes are we going to sell? Yeah. Yeah, I had I had to buy some stock, I had to buy some forks and shocks today, and it was like predicting that was oh, I was a nightmare. <laughs> you know, I'm basically going to either be short, or I'm going to end up with too many and have to sell them off cheap. It's it's uh, it's tricky. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. But at least you know, um, at least I'm I'm figuring. You know how many bikes you ordered uh, from the new yeah. Taiwan shop. You know roughly what you made this year and what interest is like. So you know you're probably not going to be off by a hundred thousand forks, right? No, you're going to be off no, by no. you're going to be off, by, off by a smaller amount, <laughs> yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Which yeah. and ten's not ten's not going to change your your uh, paying for no. the mortgage. No, I've got quite a big mortgage though. It's expensive in Bristol. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's expensive everywhere nowadays. Yeah, where yeah, is it? You know, where is it not? No, yeah, good point. Yeah. What else? Is there anything else um, you want to get into today? Um, no, I think that's good. I'm just going to do a quick one on weights. Weight, weights were my my current uh, current things I've been banging on about. I just quick, quick. Uh, so um, yeah, no need to be quick. I'm a, interested. A, I'm, I'm learning some new stuff today. Okay. So imagine, I don't know how much you weigh. Say you weigh. We we'll do we we'll do it in metric. I know I know that might confuse you, but say you're uh, say you weigh eighty five kilograms, which is what's that? I think like thirteen, fourteen stone, and um, your bike weighs fifteen kilograms, which is thirty, just over thirty pounds. So you you've got to get we'll do it in kilograms because the number's good. We've got to get hundred kilograms. It's a system weight. What do you what when you're going up the hill? What do you take up the hill? Do you take just the bike up the hill, or do you take the bike and you up the hill and your backpack and your backpack so you've got to take a hundred kilograms say to the top of the hill if you took a uh, took one of my murmurs for example and say you took i don't know a top end who makes light carbon bikes say trek might be a light carbon bike i don't know but they're sure. they're equi- their equivalent bike might be 500 grams half a kilo different in weight to one of my uh, to one of my steel bikes, so half a kilo. Although it means your 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 bike weight goes from thirty one pounds to thirty two pounds, and we go, oh, it's a pound heavier. That's terrible. In terms of the weight you've got to get up the hill, the system you've got to get up the hill, that's only half a percent. Half a kilo and a hundred kilos, so it's half a percent different to get a pound heavier bike up the hill. So the, all the stuff to do with weight is nonsense. It's it's you know, if you're, if you're, okay, I said earlier, if you're a, a top level cross country weight racer and you weigh eight stone and your bike weighs 20 pounds, it might start having 1% difference, 2% difference. But unless you're top level competition, that doesn't matter anyway. So 
Oh, I agree. Yeah, it, it, the, the only place it might matter is top level, best in the world competition yeah. where you're talking about fractions of a second at the at yeah. the finish line. That, that's but, it. I, I agree. I, in, unless you have some kind of innovation that's going to take 10 pounds off the bike, then I don't think it's that, that important. No. So unfortunately, though, it's a weight is a metric that marketing and the big companies use to show their bikes are getting better. So they will claim, oh, we've saved 200 grams off the frame. It's, it's better. And everybody goes, oh, it's 200 grams lighter. It must be better. Bollocks, it's, it's, it doesn't matter. But because it's become a metric and because it, the, the German market are massively obsessed with weight, every single German magazine you see, they, they print the weight of the component next to it. All the companies like Tune and I can't even think that are really, really obsessed with weight come out of there. So it's this metric, which doesn't matter, is really, really important to lots of people because marketing pushes it so hard. And I just think we're fools for for believing it. And everybody everybody knows when when you go to a race, if you go to an enduro race, everybody's bikes weighs 33, 34 pounds. Because if they didn't weigh yeah. that and they didn't have the right tires on them, they would just fall apart. So mm-hmm. everybody who races knows that, but still still marketing and big companies keep pushing it. And it's it's that it's that whole idea that they've got this metric that they can keep pushing and everybody believes it. It just frustrates me that everybody knows, but nobody, nobody's willing to say, oh, I, I, you know, I'm happy with my, my 33-pound bike. It's brilliant. Well, I think that goes back, too, to what I was saying about people need the education because, uh, yeah. like racing, there's a, I think there's more people that ride mountain bikes because they like riding bikes that could not tell you a single pro racer's name because they yeah. don't watch the sport. There's more yeah. of those than there are people who know who Aaron Gwynn is or who know that there's yeah. even a downhill World Cup. But yeah. I, and I think that's where bikes in, in marketing m- miss their mark. They they think that the the X Games is their market. And I can tell you right now that I ride three, four days a week and almost no one I ride with cares about any of that stuff. They'd rather be riding their bike in the woods. They're not involved yeah. with, with racing and and they don't know all the latest things about the gear. Nobody's sitting there talking about their bike being 33 and a third pounds. They're not. They're I, not, bet, I, not bet, I bet if they went to a shop, though, they would still buy the lighter thing over the heavier thing. Sure, because the, the salesman would be telling them it's important yeah. to have the lighter weight bike. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I, think you're, I, think you're, I think you're onto something there. Yeah. I agree. I need to do some. I need to do. What I need is a big. I need a big budget from somebody to dispel all the myths of uh, of mountain biking. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, eventually, maybe that will come for me. Maybe that's what I should aim at. Aim to have enough budget for that. But, uh, yeah, that you can be the mythbuster of mountain yeah. bikes. Yeah, there are a few. There are a few groups out there. Um, sort of, uh, I don't know, crazy, crazy university professors who who do it for road biking, but they're they tend to be. I don't know people in engineering and tend not to be very good at, at self-promotion and, and getting their ideas across. They sort of uh, put them on some weird antiquated website and expect that everyone reads them rather than getting it out there. True. Very true. But I think, yeah, that's, I, can, I can talk about lots of stuff for, uh, for a long time, but I think that's, uh, that's probably enough, isn't it? Otherwise, we'll start hurting people's heads. 
Yeah, I mean, we're we're right about an hour, so it's a it's a great place to to call it, and we can always do it again. This was yeah. I had a lot of fun. This was yeah. a, this was a, a good time. I'm always down for another another episode of the podcast starring Joe McEwen. I think this was a lot of fun, and I'm I'm glad we were able to put it together. Brilliant. That's great, Adam. Thank you.